Very glad that y'all are here this morning. I'm excited to be up here to be bringing the word. This is my first time to bring the word on a Sunday morning, so I'm a little excited, a little nervous, but I'm honored to be here and honored to share this message with you. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 22. That's where we're going to be this morning. Some of you may know that I spent some time in New York going to a professional acting school. And I did that because there was a point in my life where I wanted to be an actor. When I found out that football was no longer in my path, I wanted to be an actor. Because I love movies. There is something about really good storytelling that just completely captivates me. And so I wanted to be an actor. There was a point in my life where I couldn't go into Walmart without going to the $5 movie bin. Today, I have probably close to 400 DVDs in my living room, and my wife loves it. Um, I love movies, but what I hate is when a good movie has taken a hold of you and it ends and it leaves you wanting more. And so I love sequels, more specifically trilogies. I think three is a good number. Once you get past three, you start to grasp for storylines and you can start to lose some of the audience's attention, but three is solid, unless it's Star Wars. Star Wars is always good, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This morning, we're going to be starting a trilogy, one of the most famous trilogies in Scripture, and that is Psalm 22 through 24, and it has been coined the trilogy of the shepherd. And like many good trilogies, after the first one, the main character is going to be recast, and Landon will bring you the, the next two parts of the series um, in the next coming weeks. And I don't want to take too much from what he's going to say, but I do want to give you an idea of, of where we're going in this trilogy. So this first section uh, is, is titled The Good Shepherd, and it talks about the shepherd that lays down his life for his people. And then the second part is the ascended the resurrected shepherd, and it talks about the shepherd that guides his people through this harsh, dark wilderness of life. And then the third part is the ascended shepherd, which talks about how he will be faithful to those and reward those who are faithful to him. And before we get into Psalm 22, there's a couple things that you need to be aware of and you need to notice The first is that this is a song of praise. You can see before verse 1 that there's a note to the choir master, and it says, according to the doe of the dawn. I tried to look it up and find out what the doe of the dawn is, but nobody seems to know. So the best that we can figure is that it's some kind of melody. And it would have been a, a fairly famous melody because he can tell the choir master about it, and the choir master will know. Um... The second thing, which when we get into this psalm, you're going to see that it's kind of confusing on how this can be a song of praise because it starts in such a place of feeling abandoned and despair. 
So keep in mind that this is a song of praise. The second thing is that the big idea of this passage is that it is meant to be prophetic and messianic. This psalm points to the crucifixion and that the Son of Man will be glorified through this. In some of the commentaries I read, there was a little bit of a debate on this psalm. One guy thought that this psalm was not prophetic, but rather it was a psalm of lament from David, referencing something that happened in his life. But here's what we know. We know that this psalm is very clearly talking about crucifixion. In fact, it's one of the most, it's one of the best pictures of crucifixion in the Bible. We also know that David wrote this psalm centuries before Jesus' crucifixion. And so we also know that the Israelites did not invent crucifixion. So not only would David have never experienced this, but he certainly never would have heard about crucifixion. So that, coupled with the fact that Peter also affirms David as a prophet in Acts chapter 2, in a sermon in Acts chapter 2, we know that this psalm is prophetic. So, if you got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 22. We're going to go ahead and read it. And stay with me because it's a, it's a little bit of a longer one. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening, roaring lions. I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melts within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shed. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you may help, my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek shall praise the Lord. My, may your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Please pray with me. Father, you are amazing. Father, you are wonderful and you are mighty. You are righteous and you are holy. Father, you are set apart. And we praise you for who you are and all that you are. Father, we thank you that you are a loving father. And we thank you that you are the good shepherd that laid down his life for his people. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can come together this morning as a congregation and study your word. Father, I pray that you teach us. I pray that you are glorified and honored in this time. I pray that you convict us to action for your glory. I pray that what we learn here today, we take and apply to our lives this week, that your name may be made great in the city of Odessa. Father, help us to look more like you when we leave here than when we got here. Father, we love you. We trust you. Please use this time for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. This psalm is probably most famous for the very first verse, which is what Jesus quotes when he is on, scripture, on the cross. But it's a common misconception that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That the only thing that's happening is that he is being forsaken by God or that God is turning his back or that Jesus is without the presence of God. And if that is your only view of this section of, of Scripture, then you're missing a whole lot of really good stuff. It is absolutely clear that Jesus, while on the cross, is making reference to this psalm. And why he's doing that, there could be several reasons. One could be that he's reminding himself of God's character, of God's faithfulness and commitment to save him. It could be that he is reminding those around him of God's character, of his faithfulness, of his commitment to salvation, and that God will be glorified through this. It could also be that he is telling them, look what's happening. Prophecy is being fulfilled right now, because they would have been familiar with Psalm 22. It could also be that he is praising the Lord. Remember, this is a psalm of praise. So it very well could be that he is singing praises to God. 
Either way, we know that it's clear that he is drawing attention to this psalm. What, however, what leads me to think that, that his attention, his purpose is, to, is for those people that are around him and not necessarily himself is because of where his focus has been up to this point. If you look at the crucifixion, Jesus tells the women that are weeping for him, don't weep for me, weep for yourself and for your children. And he tells God to forgive the soldiers that are nailing him to the cross because they don't know what they're doing. And he tells the thief on the cross next to him, you will be with me today in paradise. And then he leaves his mother in the care of John. His focus has not been on himself, but on those around him. Which makes me think that that the reference that he's making here to Psalm 22 is not for his benefit, but for theirs. And he's reminding them of God's goodness, that God will be glorified, that God will be praised through what is happening. This psalm is also divided into two halves. In the first half, we, we see six sections. And in those six sections, there is an alternating rhythm between Pieces of suffering and prayers to God. It's also important to note that as as the psalm progresses through the first half, that these sections of suffering and prayers both intensify. The suffering intensifies from mental and spiritual suffering towards physical suffering. And the prayers intensify where he becomes more and more confident in God's faithfulness and commitment. So let's, let's take a look and see how that kind of plays out here. As we talked about earlier, this first section has that very powerful statement that's made by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we know ultimately, because of the resurrection, that Jesus was not ultimately forsaken. However, in that moment, I do believe that for a time, he was without the presence of the Father. And I believe that because that is the the essence, the foundation of our salvation, of our sanctification. He took on our hell, which is separation from God, so that we can be with him in heaven. Now, how one person of the Trinity was without the presence of another person of the Trinity, I have no idea, and it baffles me. But I do believe in verses like Romans 3.25 that tell us that he was set forth for the propitiation of our sin. And so I do believe that in that moment he was without the presence of the Father. In the second section, which is verses 3 through 5, we see that he is remembering God's faithfulness to those that were faithful to God, people that came before him and were faithful in their commitment to God. So what we see is that even though Christ is experiencing a time with, without the presence of God, he's reminding himself of God's character, of who he is, of his faithfulness and commitment to those that are faithful to him. And so essentially what he's saying is if God was faithful to those men who were faithful to him, would he not also be faithful to me? 
In the third section, which is verses 6 through 8, we see that the author switches from feelings of abandonment to feelings of being mocked. And we see that this section, verses 6 through 8, is brought to life at the crucifixion in Matthew 27, verses 39 39 through 43. And because it's brought to life in that section, we see it lived out right there. That also helps to solidify this passage as a prophecy. So it's going to be on the screens. You can read along with me if you want. But this is Matthew 27, 39 through 43. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. So we see a direct living out of verses 6 through 8 in Psalm 22. In section 4, which is verses 9 through 11, we see that he is once again remembering God's faithfulness. But this time it's different because he's not remembering God's faithfulness to those that came before him. He's remembering God's faithfulness and commitment to himself. He's reminding himself that God has been faithful to deliver him in the past. In section 5, which is verses 12 through 18, we see that the enemy is depicted as very powerful, very aggressive animals that are known for their ability to easily overcome their prey. Which gives us a sense of how aggressive and how determined the, the crowd and the soldiers were at the crucifixion. Now, when you look at that list of animals that he, he uses to describe this situation, you may not have bull at the top of your list. I, I wouldn't have. But we have to remember that in their context, bulls were wild. They're massively powerful, and they're very aggressive. And he even makes reference to specific bulls, bulls of Bashan. And these bulls were famous because Bashan was a, a fertile grassland that was just east of the Sea of Galilee. And so it was an area that was very conducive and very good for growing really big, strong, aggressive bulls. And so the bulls that came from Bashan were famous for that. Which if you've ever been to a rodeo, you've, you've seen and you know how powerful bulls can be. They are crazy animals. Um, and the people that ride them are even crazier. Also in this section, in section 5, we see the fulfillment of several prophecies at the cross. First of all, he talks about being poured out like water. And we know that whenever Jesus died and he was pierced with the spear, that blood and water came out. He says that my tongue sticks to my jaw, and we know that as Jesus was on the cross, he became thirsty and asked for a drink. 
And he mentions his hands and feet being pierced. He says that he can count all of his bones. And we know that none of Jesus' bones were broken when he was crucified. And finally, he mentions the garments which the soldiers cast lots for. In section 6, which is verses 19 through 21, we see that in this, in this last section, it begins and it looks like a cry of despair. It looks like he is, he's gone back to feeling abandoned. But in verse 21, he says, you have rescued me. And so we see that this is not a, a cry of despair, but this is a cry of triumph. He's saying, God, you have already saved me from these things that faced me. And we also see that at this point, the crucified Savior is once again able to feel the presence of God. So to this point in, in the psalm, we have seen that this psalm is prophetic. Not only because of, of what we've already seen, but we also know that it is because that's what Scripture teaches. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 22, 22. And in quoting it, he gives context to it. And what he's saying is that it comes from Christ. So when the, the psalmist talks about brothers, it is Christ talking about those that he died for. And he's calling them brother. And because he calls them brother, he gives them a place in his family. So at this point in the prophecy of Psalm 22, Jesus hasn't died yet. And we'll see that when we get to the end at verse 31. But at this point at verse 22, the focus shifts from that alternating rhythm of suffering and prayers. And it shifts towards anticipation of what the church will look like as a result of Christ's work on the cross. And this second half is, is broken into three different sections. In the first section, we see that he is talking to the Jewish congregation. He says brothers, and that can be interpreted as all those that believe in Christ. But he gives a qualifier in verse 23. He says, offspring of Jacob, offspring of Israel. And so he's, he's focusing in that first section on the congregation, the Jewish congregation. And the idea here is much like that of Acts 1.8, where it starts with the Jewish congregation and it works out from there. We see in the next section, starting in verse 25, that he moves from the Jewish congregation to speaking about the great assembly. And we see that, that the Jewish congregation was the first, the primary missionary target. But the Gentiles are the, the secondary mission target. And this is a, this is a theme that we see all throughout Jesus' ministry. He continually talked about the Gentiles being saved. In section 3, we see 
that there is a reference to future generations. People that haven't been born yet. So at this point, the author has included all walks of people. Jewish, Gentile, young, old, near, far, rich, and poor. And he has even at this point expanded the circle to those that aren't even born yet. And the point that he's trying to make here is that it's clear that all people, anyone who comes to faith in Christ and believes in Christ and his work on the cross will be counted as his brother, will be included in his family. And it's accomplished through the work that he does on the cross. Uh, In verse 31, we see the author say, he has done it. And we know from John 19.30 that Jesus interprets this as it is finished. Now in Psalm 22, that statement, he has done it, is linked to the statement right before it, which talks about God's righteousness to the unborn, to future generations. And so this tells us that what Jesus is saying is not only that his physical life is ending, but that God's atonement for mankind has been completed. That his work on the cross has been seen and accepted by a holy God. And that all who believe in him can now be sanctified through him Because at this point, God's judgment and his punishment for sin have been satisfied. And so, Jesus says, it is finished. Now, hermeneutics would tell us that when we read scripture, there are three main questions that we need to ask ourselves. First is, what does it say? What does it literally say? Two, What does it mean? And three, what does it mean for us to do? And that's because all scripture is a call to action. And that can be hard to figure out when this passage is meant to be prophetic. And so I think for us in today's context, this passage is to serve as a reminder. This passage in light of the cross is a reminder of God's commitment to his people. It's a reminder of his faithfulness to bring salvation and atonement to his people. And because of that, that should spur us to action. It should make us have a passion and a desire to share his message, to share this message that all who come to him and all who believe in him will be counted as his family. And they will be saved by his grace. So, our action, our response to this passage is to live out in passionate obedience the truth of this message. To share it in love. 
a passage of scripture that starts in a place of such despair and abandonment ends in a place of great anticipation of what's to come. And that's where Landon is going to pick up next week. Pray with me. Father, we love you. Father, we are so thankful for you. We are thankful that you are the good shepherd and that you laid down your life for us. Father, we are thankful that we are part of your family and that you count us as your brothers and sisters. Father, thank you for this this message of truth, of who you are, of your character, that you are faithful and committed to salvation and atonement of your people. Father, may we take this message and may we live it out and may we share it with those around us in this world, in this city. May we share it in love. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this time. I pray that you are glorified and honored in it. I pray that you are worshiped and that your name is made great above all else. It's your name we pray. Amen.